0: Hi, this is Liz Williams. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, the podcast about the intersection of food and museums. We're here today with Paul Friedman, professor of history at Yale University. He is author of several noted books about food, most recently American Cuisine and How It Got This Way. Welcome, Paul.
1: Great to be here.
0: So, I know that you've seen our museum in its development. Uh, I'm really anxious to hear what you thought about the concept of having this museum when you first heard about it.
1: Oh, I thought it was great. You know, why, why have I not heard about something like this before?
0: And what did you think it would have in it?
1: Well, part of it was the food part and part of it was the southern part so southern food is distinctive and having lived in the south for a while i wanted to learn something about history i liked the fact that there were objects old pieces of cooking equipment signs menus bar stools Uh, i guess it also answered what had originally been a disappointment to me when i moved to nashville from california in 1979 I thought I would see a more vibrant food tradition mm-hmm. uh, than what remained there. Mm-hmm. And it was really more like the rest of the country, except if you got outside the city and ate in people's houses. So I like the blend here between uh, people uh, who are restaurateurs and people who are just cooking what they grew up with.
0: So, in your research, do you find that having access to artifacts, in addition to written materials and things like that, are, is important, or is, is most of what you really research and think is important, is just the written record?
1: Well, I'm used to the written record, the kind of history that I do as a medievalist, and my, my day job is mm-hmm. the history of the Middle Ages is mostly texts but as in the study of the middle ages there's been a lot of movement towards uh, what is called an academic (laughs) material culture Mm -hmm. and objects i would say more design than objects so it's not as if uh, an old-fashioned apple corer or juicer or you know carrot scraper evokes a lot for me but menus are written texts but they have a certain design Mm -hmm. and you know a sort of Art Nouveau or fantasy cruise ship kind of uh, design or the modernist, molecular, joking, punning uh, restaurant menu Mm -hmm. has a certain design. So that interests me a lot.
0: So, but as a medievalist, do you talk about food at all or? Yes. Yes.
1: yes. I've worked a little bit on food in the Middle Ages. I wrote a book about spices and the use of spices in uh, food as well as in health and uh, religious ceremonies and just the love of the exotic. But medieval food research is kind of its own field. It's tricky. It involved texts that I'm not uh, entirely familiar with. And American food seemed to be something that was at the same time familiar, having grown up with it, and unfamiliar. You Look at old menus. They're so different from what people eat now. Mm -hmm. Why was terrapin or turtle so popular in the 19th century? Why don't we eat liver and other organ meats anymore? These kinds of things, I guess, interested me disproportionately.
0: (laughs) So if you're writing about spices, is it important at all to actually taste the spice in order for you to be able to make sense of some of the things that are said or smell them? It
1: is helpful. So in some cases, it's not a big problem. Nutmeg we're all familiar with, and they were enchanted by it in the Middle Ages. Where it's tough is in very exotic things, particularly animal substances like ambergris. Mm -hmm. So ambergris is produced by whales. Mm -hmm. It's mostly a perfume ingredient, but it is... Or was used also as a food ingredient, and I managed to um, get some from a guy who was a wholesale perfume and flavor oh. entrepreneur. And I made eggs with ambergris, which was a popular dish right through the 17th century.
0: And what did it taste like?
1: It's sort of like perfumed uh, <laughs> uh, eggs. Uh, very, very, very good. I mean, very. Um, I don't know, magical. The the thing is that, and this is why it's good to give talks to different audiences, I mentioned to an audience, I think at Harvard, that I didn't understand how this could be made because ambergris is like pumice. It's sort of light, uh, weight, crumbly. Mm-hmm. It's a little stickier than pumice. And it would seem as if the eggs it would be too sandy. So as if you put, put sand on, uh, on eggs. But somebody in the audience said, oh, no, 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 it has a very low melting temperature, and so the heat of the surface of the scrambled or fried eggs is enough to melt it. So it's not all that attractive, it's rather grey-looking, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you don't, it's not crunchy at all. It, it liquefies and it, it becomes volatile and perfuming.
0: Wow. See, I think that's really fascinating, the fact that you actually could still taste it and didn't just have to read about it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. uh, You know, there's certain things that you understand. So although this doesn't involve spices, one of the favorite foods of the Middle Ages, prestigious, very expensive, uh, was lamprey. So, Lamprey's like uh, an overgrown eel. It has teeth in its mouth. It's a terrible creature that sucks out the guts of other sea creatures mm-hmm. and um, it's consumed by human beings in a horrible way as well. It has to be like drowned in red wine and slid open while still alive and uh, so uh, French authority, French gourmet says that the evil of the lamprey and the violence of its demise is more than made up for, you know, complemented by the fact that it's absolutely delicious. Uh. So it was very popular in the Middle Ages because they had all these days when they had to fast and avoid meat for Lent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is, I knew from reading that it is sort of meaty. And I thought that meant that, like eel, it had a dark flesh. Mm-hmm. But only when I had it in Bordeaux, which is one of the few places that still uh, has lambrian, where they're enthusiastic for it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that it's not just that it's a little bit like meat. It's exactly like meat. It has the texture of uh, beef short ribs or venison. Wow. And it's the f- fairly same color. It it doesn't come on the bone the same way. Mm-hmm. You can see that it's... a um, a kind of cylindrical creature with cartilage in the center, but the actual meat made in red Bordeaux wine sauce with some of the blood of the lamprey
2: mm-hmm. and
1: leeks and potatoes, unbelievably delicious. I had oh. gone to this restaurant thinking, all right, this restaurant has lamprey, I'm going to order it and then I'll go get, you know, steak frites for my real dinner. But, right. but, uh,
0: but you it ate it. It was spectacular. I,
1: I, I ate a full oh, portion.
0: my. Well, now you've made me want to eat it or try it. Worthwhile. Definitely definitely.
1: worthwhile. Amazing.
0: One of of the things that I think we have found to be very important, and I know we had talked about this with regard to the museum of food and drink, is having some kind of a food component that it goes along with whatever exhibits you're doing or anything like that. And that's sometimes really difficult to do in a museum because you never know whether it's going to be a big museum day or not, unless you're having a special tour or something like that. Um, and so I could see where you would almost have that same element when you're writing the history or whatever, just making it make more sense why there was enthusiasm for something or something like that, not just because um, they say in writing, oh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for this or support for this or whatever. Right. yeah.
1: Right, and so the, the ability to taste certain things is more important than I would have given it credit for somehow. I don't think I appreciate it, even though I like food and uh, uh, am fascinated by it. how So Terrapin is another example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I managed to have that once also, and that really made me understand something about the taste of 19th century America when it was at the height of its popularity.
0: One of the things that I think I get from artifacts is the older the artifact, the more work you realize had to be done in order to make the food Um, and how it required you to um, have, you know, the strength to uh, pick up a uh, cast iron pot or uh, lean over into a fire to deal with it, things like that, which today you wouldn't really have to do.
1: Right, I don't think we appreciate. I mean, there there are conveniences that are what I would consider to be kind of false conveniences. So, um, frozen strawberries, you know, why not just buy some strawberries and cut them up? Right. (laughs) Um, But there are some others where, you know that you're sacrificing something so the thing's cooked over coal or uh, uh, an open fire. Right. Uh, Paella tastes better made over an open fire the Mm. way it's supposed to be, but it's certainly uh, an awful lot of effort compared to the normal way. Doing it on the stove, yes. And
0: baba ganoush without that smoky element just doesn't taste the same. Right, there are some
1: things where uh, either you're gonna go to the effort to do it right or it's not worth doing Mm
2: -hmm. at all.
1: So paella, I would say, comes out very nicely, even if it's not uh, as smoky and authentic. But, uh, um, yeah, a baba ganoush without the smoke is just like vegetable spread.
0: Yes, exactly. I'm with you. I can remember my mother, who used to make it a lot, just doing it over the flame in, in the kitchen because she just couldn't stand not to have something on fire when she yes. was making it. Yeah, yeah. You know? So now that we're at this larger place, um, one of the things that's really fun is that we let people go get a drink and carry it around while they're um, viewing things in the museum. And I realize that we're in New Orleans and you can't do that everywhere, but uh, it um, it is a nice kind of welcoming way, especially we have a lot of people who aren't really seasoned museum goers who come to this museum because they're interested in the subject matter and maybe wouldn't have been at art museums or whatever. And I always think that they're getting a warped idea about what you can do in most museums.
1: Let the others take care of themselves. That's
0: right. (laughs) We also let people carry around red wine, which is such a a no-no in in museums.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Louisiana's different. There's no doubt about it
0: that's true that is true so when you were writing um your your book the 10 restaurants that influenced america how did you um, make those
1: decisions it it was easier than you might think so it's not as if i started out with a list of 200 and narrowed it down somehow i had certain categories like you can't do a history of american food without a chinese restaurant Mm -hmm. Or uh, I wanted to have, not McDonald's, partly because lots of people have written about it, but something that really started roadside
2: mm-hmm.
1: chain restaurants and, and chose Howard Johnson's for that. that. That eventually seemed to be obvious to me as well. And then there are some, what a friend of mine calls non-negotiable restaurants. You, you have to have Delmonico's, the first restaurant that dominated the field in the entire 19th century. You have to have Chez Panisse, which is the most single, most influential restaurant for the last 50 years mm-hmm. of American culinary history. Um, beyond that, uh, the, the the toughest one was Mama Leone's, so uh, the Italian restaurant. I knew I had to have an Italian restaurant, but um, I went back and forth among a list of three or four possibilities.
2: All
0: over the country? Or yeah, the, all... yeah
1: the, the runner-up was one in um, San Francisco, um, whose name escapes me at the moment. Fiore? But, yeah, the, Fiore d'Italia, Fiam. exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: That would be the only other one that would come straight to my head. Right, yeah.
1: right. It's old, uh, even older than Mama Leone's, dating from the 1880s. And um, someone has written its history uh, mm-hmm. And so you could you could base it on that. I chose Mama Leone's because there wasn't a book about it already. There was a cookbook that Gene uh, Leone put out, uh, and there was a fair amount of biographical information, but also because. When I was growing up, no true New Yorker ever went to Mamalioni's. By that Mm -hmm. time, it was just considered a tourist
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: trap. But it was a very big and very successful tourist trap that served 3,000 people a day. Oh, my. Uh, And at one time, you know, it was the biggest single restaurant in the United States. Maybe Las Vegas came to surpass it, uh, some some casino restaurant there. Mm -hmm. But... uh, If that's not influence, I don't know what is.
0: No, that Fiore was uh, involved in that lawsuit about um, tipping. And so it has a certain uh, influence because of that, which I thought was an interesting um, element.
1: Uh, Enrico Caruso dined there. (laughs) No, that Enrico Caruso was uh, singing the night uh, I think, La Boheme, and uh, uh, in the morning, early morning after, was the great earthquake. Oh. And yeah. uh, uh, I think he had dined the night before at Fiore d'Italia. Wow.
0: <laughs> so where else are you going on your book tour?
1: Well, this is, this is the end. The I was end. in L.A., uh-huh. Oakland, Minneapolis. Washington, D.C., a couple other places. And
0: so, what are people saying about uh, the question and your answer about uh, whether there really is an American cuisine?
1: Well, nobody really challenges this, I think, uh, and to my surprise, they don't even try to say, oh, yeah, but what about this? What about apple pie? Or, you know, mm-hmm. what about pot roast? Uh, I think they get the uh, fact that. American food is not a collection of iconic or symbolic agreed upon dishes. Mm -hmm. That it's rather an approach to food and that that approach has been certainly one that at times has tried to make food predictable, homogenized, convenient, inexpensive, but not necessarily all that tasting. And that what we're trying to do and have been for the last couple decades is to rediscover how to make food that's delightful. And a lot of the questions are about the future, about environmental issues, about um, waste. impossible burger, mm-hmm. waste. Um, and, you know, those are certainly the contemporary issues that preoccupy my students at Yale as well.
0: And do they ask questions about the impossible burger in terms of the ethics of eating meat or the ethics of um, meat as it affects the environment or are they worried about how processed it is in order to make it mimic actual meat?
1: Uh, Not so much the third, more the second. The environmental consequences of the cattle industry, Mm -hmm. livestock, both the deforestation of Mm -hmm. Brazil and other places to create pastures. The, uh, you know, the waste, the water uh, depletion, um, and, and to some extent just the, the, the cycle of cruelty. And
0: And so do you think that it's very American to worry about those things over the tastiness of food? Um, I mean, I, I think that in very many places where the first concern people have about food is that it tastes good.
1: But see, I don't think that in America that has been Our overriding concern, Uh maybe in Louisiana, it has been, (laughs) but until recently, the overriding concern was that it's good enough. But I think it has to taste okay, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or that it tastes okay, and you can add stuff to it. Uh, The the meat is bland, but with a one sauce, it tastes great. Or the steak is doesn't have very much taste at all, but with Bernese sauce, uh, it's great. You know, if you put enough barbecue sauce, Tabasco, maple syrup, whatever it is, uh, 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 it'll be. Fine,
0: Or else it tastes horrible, but it doesn't matter because it's healthy.
1: Yeah, it, it, or it doesn't taste very good, but it's healthy, flaxseed or, mm-hmm. or kale. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, actually food as a delight is something that Americans have had to kind of relearn. Uh, and the thesis of Alice Waters and others has been that if food, you find food delightful, then you stop making it an obsessive kind of binge and then fasting mm-hmm. uh, cycle, and you actually get your body in tune with what it likes, rather than seeing it as your enemy and mm-hmm. as something that is only going to be happy if you give in to you know eating a box of donuts. Right. Uh, yeah. That this is a, a behavior that is is unnecessary and that most of the rest of the world knows how to avoid Mm -hmm. but that's a hard lesson obviously we have enough obesity so that you can't claim that we've
0: overcome 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 it yes you know when copia opened um and they had to come up with the question of how do we represent american cuisine um, I think they had no trouble with the wine elements, of course they were there in Napa, but uh, I think they came up with the same idea, and so they showed American food as almost only um, processed so there was jello and there was you know other kinds of fiddling with food like low fat milk, two percent milk, all of that kind of thing, and then processed cheese, which you have to use all that fat that you've taken out of milk to do something with.
1: And right, or like breakfast cereal, uh, it, it was sold as healthful and convenient, uh, but in order to make it taste good, they added sugar.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: at the time, this was seen as fine because you know, gives kids energy or whatever was supposed to be the benefit of having sugar. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, it would be better to dispense with the whole thing than to have uh, these things that have this huge quantity of sugar, sugar. is no mm-hmm. longer healthful. You might as well have bacon and eggs and get it over with.
2: Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's probably just less of everything because it's not only the sugar, but the highly refined flour or whatever other grain they're yeah. using. Yeah. Yeah. I—I yeah. I thought I, I found the the display at Copia to be really interesting with frozen frozen juices and you know when used all everybody would buy that frozen juice concentrate Concentrate, and then re-add water to it or whatever and one of the things that i thought was very interesting is that if you actually juice an orange you use one of those little glasses that used to be called a juice Mm -hmm. glass because that's how much juice there was in an orange but if you bought concentrate, you could use a huge glass because you could drink as much as you wanted. It wasn't related to how much juice there was actually in an orange. And it just, all of that kind of creeping um, portions portion. Portion size things, problems. You know, that's it, right.
1: That's right. I hadn't thought of that, but that's exactly.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's
1: exactly it, right.
0: It, and of course, if you're selling orange juice concentrate, you want to sell as much as you can.
1: Right, so, so. You, the suggested serving triples.
0: Yes, exactly. And we did a uh, we did a program here with the World War II Museum, where we cooked out of some of the pamphlets that you could get during the um, uh, rationing period, and we used implements and casserole dishes and whatever of the period and I remember we did one casserole that was supposed to to serve six and it was about uh, seven inches in diameter and maybe three inches tall maybe four and once you we made it it fit perfectly into this casserole dish so you knew that the proportions were all perfect according to what was in the ration um, the ration brochure. And people just couldn't believe it, that they thought it was maybe three, but likely two portions. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, well, I think we've gotten used to large portions because restaurants' costs are not really in food. Their major costs are rent, labor,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, insurance. It's insurance, yeah. And so they've got to charge a certain amount. And in order to get you to pay that with a smile, they'll just give you
0: more food. Uh, more food. Mm-hmm.
1: And then you'll take some home with you. Then you feel like you've gotten a good deal and they mm-hmm. get rid of their, they reduce their trash bills. Right, right. So everybody wins, wins in, in the short way. term. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: It's a... Uh... It is really amazing I spe- I, to me just being able to see the changes in the dishes has been and and the the pans and things is amazing just to see the the size of things, especially things like muffins or cupcakes or yes
1: yes that 's right I, I I had breakfast today to play and, and, and the muffins are huge mm-hmm. uh, huge the, i mean I, I ate all of mine because. Uh, you know the suggestion you generally follow, but mm-hmm. uh, it should have been half the songs definitely mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's I, I find that really uh, the kind of thing that demonstrates to people that lesson without you ever even have to having to explain it it's one of the things I kind of like about the artifact as opposed to just the words because they internalize it that way because they've actually experienced it.
1: Yeah, you're quite right.
0: So thank you very much for joining us. Um, Thanks for being on Tip of the Tongue. It's a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. You can listen to us on our website at natfab.org or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you next time.